You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Probably one of the most maybe exciting topics of the day, I would say, in today's political climate, talking Brexit today, will be Phil Shuckleton. He, um, as you guys know, you've got the speaker profiles in front of you. Again, keep on track. We won't talk too much here. But he is our UK master. He was a former managing director of the Center for West European Studies, and he works over in the Foster School of Business as well. Um, so we'll let him take it from here. Yes. So... Good afternoon, everybody. I, I see a lot of familiar faces from uh, teacher workshops past, and it's, it's great to see you know, so many uh, loyal teachers and also new faces. Um, and it's great to present about a topic close to my heart, which is Brexit. Um, I've been following this issue closely, uh, was still stunned by the, the, the outcome, caught other people by surprise. And today I want to just kind of discuss why we had a Brexit vote and how it came out the way it did and what it means for the future of the UK and the European Union. So, as you probably know, on June 23rd, the British public voted uh, to take the United Kingdom out of the European Union after 43 years of membership. Uh, the vote was close, 52% uh, for leave versus 48% uh, for, uh, for remain. Uh, with a very high uh, voter turnout, 72%. So it was a pretty decisive outcome, even if it was close. Uh, the vote led to the downfall of uh, Prime Minister David Cameron and with Britain's new uh, Prime Minister, Theresa May, vowing to implement the referendum result, i.e., as she says, Brexit means Brexit. Now, when the withdrawal takes place, no date has been set yet, Britain become the first EU member to have withdrawn from the European Union. Uh, the full implications of this change for, for Britain and for the European Union are still unknown. The only certainty at this point is a degree of uncertainty. So in this talk, I'd like to focus on what we know right now and some possible scenarios unfolding uh, in the next few years in terms of Britain's relationship with the EU and the broader implications of the Brexit referendum. I want to focus on, on three things. Uh, one is, what is Brexit? Um, two is, what factors contributed to Brexit? That's going to be the bulk of the talk. And then three, what will happen next in terms of Britain's and the EU's uh, future, particularly in terms of their relationship? So let's start with something we can all pretty much agree on, which is that Britain has long been an awkward uh, and ambivalent partner with Europe and as part of the European project of European integration. Uh, the referendum and its outcome are set in a context of um, decades of contentious debate of, within Britain about the nation's role within Europe. Uh, so that's not to say that the outcome, the referendum or the outcome was inevitable, but there's a lot of historical context here that goes back to before 
the, uh, before Britain even joined the European Economic Community in 1973. So I want to talk a little bit about the history before we get into uh, the main discussion of what's been happening the last few months. Um, so viewed from outer space, Britain is obviously seemingly a part of, of Europe. Uh, and indeed, Britain has long had a very close economic, trade, cultural, and even mig migration ties with, uh, with Europe. Yet it's often felt very separate uh, culturally and in other ways from the continent. So in Europe, but not really of Europe, is kind of how the British have felt. And it's this ambivalence of, it's this attitude of ambivalence and aloofness that kept Britain from participating in the first uh, stages of European integration in the 1950s. Uh, and Britain, as we know, had won the war, uh, had, had an empire, uh, and a special partnership with the United States during this period. So it, it really felt it didn't need Europe. Europe was for the Europeans. We can go and do things on our own. Now, the attitude of many British leaders quickly changed when they saw how much the European economies were benefiting from European integration. Uh, so Britain thus jo eventually joined the European Economic Community in 1973, a decision that was uh, affirmed by a public referendum in 1975. So this is actually the second referendum on British membership in the European Union. The first one, they voted to stay in by a significant margin. Now, at that time, the Labour Party was actually split on the question of European Union membership or EEC membership, um, feeling that the European economic community was this capitalist tool. Uh, it was all about free markets and industry, not for average people and certainly not for workers. Now, that role has now changed with the Conservative Party, at least for the last three decades, being split on uh, membership, an attitude in membership in the uh, European Union. So uh, it is now labor that is generally more pro-EU, not completely, and the, the Conservative or Tory party that is, is split on this issue. And this is in some ways ironic given the degree to which during this time the European Union has become more of a champion of free market business, free trade, all the things that are close to like the British Conservatives' heart. But perhaps it's also a sign that in this period, the EU has grown beyond its original economic focus into other regulatory, political, and social areas. And this is what gives British Eurosceptics pause for concern. They, they see too many powers in these other areas going to Brussels. Uh, so they see this as the erosion of British sovereignty and British democracy. So these longstanding anxieties, anxieties were heightened after as a, or as a result of the 2007-2008 financial crisis. Not because the EU was becoming you know, too powerful in this crisis, but because it seemed so weak in how it dealt with uh, the financial out, uh, outfall. Uh, it didn't have a decisive solution or fix to the problem. And so a lot of British people just looked to the continent seeing the, the, the problems of coming up with a solution to the Eurozone crisis, particularly the Greek debt crisis, the slow uh, economic growth and recession in many countries. And uh, so they kind of thought to themselves, um, you know, well, why, should we, why should we be in this? 
So this, so this was fueling, the problems in Europe were fueling Euroscepticism in Britain. So Prime Minister David Cameron's announcement in 2013 that he would hold a referendum on EU membership if re-elected was driven in part by his need to respond to the growing popularity of the UK Independence Party, their, their leader Nigel Farage right there, in the aftermath of the financial crisis and the Great Recession. Um, so it was also, from his perspective, David Cameron, it was a way to heal a rift or kind of patch over a rift within his own party between the, again, the, the, the part of the Conservative Party that was pro-Europe or at least kind of neutral on Europe and the Eurosceptical wing of the, of the party which you know, had been increased because of the Eurozone crisis and the economic crisis on the continent, but also now are facing the challenge on their right from the UK Independence Party. So this was done really for kind of internal political reasons, as it were, to offer this referendum. And David Cameron was reelected in 2015, uh, and he, to his, to his promise, keeping to his promise to offer a referendum before 2017, Earlier this year, he said we would have a referendum in June of, of 2016. Now, between that promise and when it was actually carried out, a couple big things happened. Um, one is Britain has largely now recovered from the Great Recession and uh, has kind of managed to achieve some economic, some pretty good economic growth uh, on its own. Meanwhile, the Eurozone economies continue to stall, continues to be problems with Greek debt crisis, although it's not so much right now, but certainly last year in 2015 there was a crisis. So that kind of fuels skepticism of, of the British public. It's like, look, Europe can't solve its problems. Maybe we should just do things on our own. Why do we want to be a, a members of a club that has so many problems? And then the second major issue was, of course, the migration crisis. And again, People looked at Europe and saw that there was an inability to come up with decisive solution to uh, uh, deal with the, uh, the problem. And so the, the migration crisis added you know, uh, further fuel to anxieties that the British were having about EU immigration to their country, about uh, border security, issues about terrorism. So this really, again, fueled the Euroscepticism among the British public. And um, I don't think these factors alone, uh, and I can show you some uh, images, I don't think these factors alone kind of uh, created um, the, the, you know, the referendum or the outcome, but it's an important context to the referendum, knowing that there were problems within the EU and the British public and many other European publics were becoming increasingly skeptical of the EU's ability to deal with these problems. So that would be the first factor is the weakness of the EU. The second is immigration. And uh, most, uh, most pre-referendum polls show that leave voters in particular were greatly concerned with immigration. With one, Ipsos Mori, this is a big British poll, polling firm, uh, uh, one poll showing that it was the principal concern of over 50% of um, potential leave voters or people that were planning to vote for leave. So it was, it was a major issue. And certainly there had been a pretty big surge in immigration to the UK 
in the decade preceding uh, the vote, or the last 10 to 15 years. And this chart shows net migration to the UK. So these are people outflow from the UK, and this is people coming into the UK. And starting in 1998, the net migration to the UK was at least 100,000 people per year. And that number peaked in 2015 with uh, over 330,000 net migrants coming into the UK. So a lot of people seeing this big influx of uh, immig immigrants to the UK, about half of which are from the EU and half are from other countries. So, um, uh, but overall, uh, some 8.3 million people uh, in the United Kingdom, or about 13% uh, of the total population, are now foreign born, as compared to 8.9% in 2004. So almost a 50% increase in just over a decade. So a lot of people, this is creating a lot of anxiety, uh, and it's certainly something that the Brexit people, again here, Nigel Farage, could exploit. And so they were accused of stoking fear of immigrants. And here's a, the most stark example. They have this uh, poster of Syrian migrants coming into Europe last summer. And they made this, this big poster. Uh, and then they were immediately critiqued for this, uh, for, for stoking fear and racism. But you know, this was part of their campaign and probably a very effective uh, aspect of their, uh, of their campaign. So. Um, interestingly, though, the Leave campaign did better in places where there was relatively lower immigration numbers, or relatively lower numbers of, of foreigners. Uh, London, which is about 40% foreign-born, voted to remain. Uh, the places that voted to leave were either had low percentages or, very interestingly, had a big influx over the last 10 years. That seems to be the more critical factor. If you had a bigger influx over the last decade, that seemed to, there seemed to be some connection with a greater chance of voting leave. But in London, no. And if you take London out of the, the numbers, that, that, that kind of relationship becomes even stronger. Um, so, so immigration as an issue probably played a pretty significant factor in the vote, for at least for the, you know, the lead voters. Um, another factor is globalization. And so you have immigration, but then you have these broader, more generalized fears about global, globalization overall. And you know, many Britons fear immigrants taking their jobs, but they also fear imports displacing British industries and British jobs. And UK unemployment this year, before Brexit, was under 5%, relatively low. But what you've seen over, again, about the last 10, 15 years is a pretty significant drop in industrial manufacturing employment from around 4.5 million in the late 1990s, in 1997, to 2.5 million in 2010. And so here it is as a percentage of total employment going down. And, but mostly compensated by services. Okay, so this is part of a secular trend that many industrial economies or post-industrial economies are experiencing. There's a decline in manufacturing employment. In fact, manufacturing output is uh, measured by value has actually increased in the UK as they focus on higher end products, 
more efficient manufacturing. Uh, British manufacturing actually can do pretty well, but it's employing fewer people, a lot fewer people. So there's speculation that this, you know, places that had lost jobs were more susceptible to the leave argument that the EU, as a representative of globalization, was, was bad for Britain. Now, two academic, uh, academics from Italy have looked at the impact of Chinese imports that kind of focused on this specific issue in 39 administrative regions and looked at the connection between uh, how vulnerable industries in those constituencies or those districts are to Chinese imports and the vote for the Leave campaign. Mm -hmm. And they see a fairly significant connection. So that's, they say that's, you see, there's the link is, is you know, they have vulnerable industries and they've lost jobs, they're more likely to vote, vote for leave. Um, and furthermore, they applied the same methodology to other West European countries like France. And they also see a similar connection between areas that uh, are under competition from Chinese imports and, and support for um, like the Front National in France or other uh, kind of anti-establishment protectionist parties in other countries. So again, this is kind of a correlation. There's not an explicit causal relationship. And there are other correlations that you can point to, uh, like immigration. But it's, there seems to be something there. And certainly these areas um, are, are concerned about uh, their economic future. Ironically, though, many of these same districts that voted for leave are dependent on EU exports. They actually are more dependent on things like agricultural exports or, or light manufacturers products to the EU than places that voted to remain, like London. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in, say, some rural districts in England, whether, you know, what will happen if uh, Britain loses access to certain EU food or agricultural markets or lose agricultural subsidies from the European Union that may or may not be replaced by the UK government. Um, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive. And it's interesting because people don't necessarily vote for or against Brexit based on their simple economic interests. Uh, it's, you know, most, remember that most economists and uh, in major industries came out on the side of the Remain campaign, uh, very strongly, actually, in many cases, arguing that Brexit would hurt the economy. Uh, and. The OECD, among others, came out with a study showing that a Brexit vote would hurt the economy, they said, by up to 3% by 2020. And in one worst case scenario put out by the UK Treasury, they predicted the economy would shrink by about 6% if, if you know, the worst case scenario for Brexit unfolded, including you know, the negotiations for its relationship with the European Union, actually 6.2%. And they said, well, roughly 4,300 pounds per household. And the Remain campaign jumped on this to say, you know, here, 4,300 pounds. This is what you, about $6,000, depending on what the pound's doing right now. This is what you stand to lose if we, Britain exits the EU. And the Leave campaign dubbed this Project Fear. They said, you're trying to scare the public with these horror stories about what will happen to the economy if we leave the EU. Uh, and we don't know what's going to happen yet with the, the British economy now that's left the EU. We'll discuss a little bit of that momentarily. 
But it's pretty clear that if people were scared by the potential consequences of leaving the EU, it wasn't scared. They, a lot of them weren't scared enough to decide to vote Remain. So the yes. I'm going to say, might they not just go back to the way it was before they joined the European Union and um, they were doing most of their trading with the Commonwealth, so New mm -hmm. Zealand, Australia, Canada, and doing very well at that time. Right. What was the argument that was against joining the EC? Yes, um, and uh, it'd be hard to go back to like, you know trade just with the Commonwealth and the right. Empire, but yeah, some version of that where they're trading around the world. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is one of the arguments put out by the, the, the pro leave camp. And I'll come back to that at the end when we talk about economic consequences. But yeah, that was one of the contentious issues is, you know, the Leave campaign was then saying, no, it's not going to be this bad because we're going to go around the world. We're not just wedded to Europe. We're going to be this global trader and we're going to do quite well. Both camps probably exaggerated what could be done or the worst case scenario, you know, to try and kind of get people to vote for them. But we'll come back to that in, in just a bit. So. So that's the, the, the globalization factor. Uh, and we'll come back to the economics uh, at the end. And so the next factor I want to look at, this is the last factor, is the kind of an anti-establishment backlash. And I think this fits into the theme of, of today's program, most especially. And you know, in, in other words, to what degree did British voters vote to leave the EU as a way to rebuke or ignore their politicians or the media or experts who were telling them to remain. And likewise, to what degree did the vote outcome come as, the fact that it came as a surprise to so many of the people in power or in, to people in business, how much of that is a demonstration that the elites are out of touch with the opinion of the, the public? So there's kind of a two sides to this. Um, and this is a very interesting issue, of course, because this is one of the topics we're studying here today. Uh, it, it resonates in a lot of different countries. We, we, we're thinking about these issues right now in our own country. So um, you know, is it necessarily a cause? Um, maybe, but it's, it's certainly one way people are interpreting the outcome. Let's put it that way. And so you can certainly say that anti-establishment sentiment is high in the UK and in a lot of European countries right now, particularly in the aftermath again of the Great Recession and the Eurozone crisis. And the fact that a majority, 52% of UK voters could, would choose to ignore expert, most, most experts on the economic consequences may point to you know, a, a general disenchantment or a kind of belief that, you know, the, the experts don't know, necessarily know what they're talking about or giving them kind of, they're giving them the wrong line. And the general public in particular might be particularly skeptical of, of elites. And this chart shows the kind of gap between say the informed educated public and the mass public when it comes to kind of institutions today. So in the UK, 57% of kind of what's called the informed public trust their major institutions, where it's around 40% for the mass public. So there could be this, again, this gap between the, 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 the not just the elite, but the professional classes and, and the mainstream. Not just in the UK, but the US and many other um, uh, Western democracies. 
So there's, there's this aspect, which is heightened by um, a sense by many people in the general public that globalization, this is to go back to the previous slide, does not benefit them to the same degree as, say, the professional classes. So in fact, the best demographic indicator of whether you voted for leave or remain was educational credentials. So those people who had a degree voted to remain. Those who didn't tended to vote leave. And this was true, but less so in the, the, the relationship was less the case in, in Scotland, but was still there. So this is percentage that voted for leave. Um, and, and then this was um, people with a degree. So a lot of people without degrees, this is in a, in a constituency. They're measuring this by constituency, not by individuals. But there's a pretty clear relationship. This is the strongest relationship when going through the demographic information that they found. They don't have uh, many uh, voter uh, poll, uh, you know, post-voter uh, polls that were done, uh, exit polls. Um, so this is, this is broader. But it, it, it could be revealing. Um, and I had one British colleague uh, who went to a rally before the um, uh, vote uh, for a working class audience. And he said, look, if we say in the EU, our economy will be 2% stronger. And someone shouted out to him, uh, yeah, that's your 2%. So that you know, may be capturing kind of the mood that not everyone feels that they're in an equal position to benefit from, from globalization. And so that kind of language of taking back control is, is you know, kind of uh, got, gets a better, uh, bigger audience. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, it's going to take a while for people to kind of go through all the data and try to find like uh, more c uh, clear explanations. This is all, I'm just, I'm posing different factors, not trying to give an explanation. I think that's going to take a long time for people to go through all this and to try and come up with a, a much clearer causal relationship, what actually caused Brexit. Um, but I th and in all cases, I think it's important to not get too carried away with focusing on any particular factor or issue. Remember, this was still a fairly close vote, 52 to 48. And things could have gone very differently with even small changes like higher voter turnout among the young, although they did turn out actually in quite high numbers, but say higher vote uh, turnout uh, compared to the old. Uh, who voted leave, young people voted remain, or maybe the, you know, how they ran the campaigns. One aspect is a lot of people are saying that the Labor Party wasn't vocally supportive enough of the remain campaign, so their voters were like, well, I don't know what to vote on, I'm gonna vote for leave or remain, that the, uh, the Labor Party should have been more vocal in support of the European Union. So their leader, Jeremy Corbyn, famously said, like on a scale of one to 10, how much do you like the EU? He said, uh, seven. You know, that's not gonna do it. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, but, so there's, so things could have gone very differently, and we didn't even have to have this vote is another thing to think about. Um, this was because David Cameron made a, made a political gamble, right, to kind of shore up his support among the, uh, the party and also the electorate. And it's a gamble he lost, he lost his job, but millions of people in the UK now are 
potentially have lost the European Union. It looks likely they're going to lose their membership in the European Union. So a lot of upset people, too. Um, but uh, it's, you know, the, re the referendum has happened, though. Uh, there's not going to be a do-over. Uh, and, you know, we now have to just kind of figure out what are the consequences. And so that's why I want to close now is with discussion of the consequences. And um, I think the most immediate consequences that we all saw was, you know, David Cameron resigning as prime minister, which is in keeping with tradition with of, of, of UK politics and UK political system. He lost this major vote, and now he's going to step down. He's not going to remain in office. So here he is announcing his resignation, um, and and his wife, who got a lot of attention for what she was wearing. There was kind of a strange, the UK press, they just have a, you know, um, but uh, yeah, so this was obviously a very emotional moment. And then, um, so that was no surprise that he stepped down. What was a surprise was Theresa May replaced his, replaced him as prime minister. Many people were speculating it's gonna be Boris Johnson, it's going to be Michael Gove, these two champions of the Leave campaign. And you know, Boris Johnson was going to use the Leave campaign to become Britain's next prime minister. Well, the problem is um, you know, he may have upset a lot of people in this process or you know, could have had enemies or opponents even before the election. Uh, so what emerged uh, instead, or who emerged instead, was Theresa May who was you know, probably seen more as like a good compromise candidate, uh, stable, steady hands after the, the, the big shouty boys kind of left everything a shambles. You know? So uh, you, you have someone coming in who kind of was a little bit more restrained during the, the referendum campaign, and so was able to amass support of a majority of the members, the conservative members of parliament. That's how they elect their new uh, prime Minister. It's not the general public. It's uh, um, when, it, when there's a party change, when, there's, when a party leader steps down. She'll have to call an election eventually, but this is, for now, she can just do it based on her, her party, because they hold power. Um, so she might not have that direct electoral mandate, at least not yet, but she does feel that the referendum gives her a mandate to negotiate Britain's withdrawal from the EU. And as I said before, and as she said, Brexit means Brexit. Those are her words. Um, and so again, there's not going to be a second vote, and uh, she's, she's not going to change uh, policy on this. But what will Brexit mean for the UK? Well, for starters, some believe it may be the end of the United Kingdom itself. Uh, and specifically, that Scotland or Northern Ireland may choose to either get more autonomy or try to get more autonomy for themselves or even declare independence. Uh, if you look at the, 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 the referendum vote, Scotland voted 62 to 38 to stay in the EU, whereas England was 47% stay versus 53% uh, leave. So a pretty stark difference between England and Scotland, and Northern Ireland, too, voted more to stay than, than remain. So the leaders of the Scottish National Party are using this vote and the difference in outcomes or difference in <coughs> votes to argue that 
look, we wanted to stay in the EU. England wants to do its own thing and leave the EU, but we want to stay. Maybe it's time for us to go our separate ways. Now, they had a referendum on uh, Scottish independence several years ago, and the independence movement lost. But now they say, well, the, the situation has changed if Britain leaves the EU, and we want to have another vote. Well, the British public's not, I mean, excuse me, the Scottish public's in polls show they're not really ready for another referendum. They're not in, it's not really kind of what they want to do yet. Uh, but that may change depending on how the negotiations go and how the UK economy fares in the next several years. So that's one issue. Northern Ireland, the fact that Britain will leave the EU means there will be a harder border here between Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland, potentially. And um, it kind of undermines the peace process, one that was you know, very carefully crafted. When the British decide we want to leave the EU and Ireland stays in, it was, it was easier to craft peace when both part, parties were part of the same club. It's like, OK, we're all in this. We're all members of the EU. Uh, this can help the peace process. But now some people are saying this could unravel. But again, it's very early. So um, it's just something people are thinking about. Okay, um, I'll leave it. So now Brexit in the UK economy. Uh, let me just say that you'll you know remember in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote, there was a big drop in global markets, the stock markets around the world, and in the UK panel. Now the the markets were expecting a Remain vote, so they were caught kind of flat-footed and by surprise. So. Uh, they had already calculated a remain vote into a lot of their projections and investments. And so now the markets dropped quite dramatically. They've regained most, uh, or in many cases, all or even beyond what they lost as in the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote. Okay? So there's this panic, but it's largely recovered. The pound still is weak, though. It recovered a little bit, but it's still relatively weak against the dollar. If you get up traveling to Britain, go now. Um, it's 1.30, very low. It reached a 31-year low right after the vote. So, and now the drop in the pound help, has helped UK exports. Um, so there's been a little silver lining. But overall, the economy immediately slowed down. It was had been growing, and then already in July, it's it's reduced. It's gone down, uh, reduced growth, and um, there's a possibility of a recession by the end of the year. So there's been a pretty big shift. In, in, in you know business confidence, consumer confidence, and and the economy seems to be teetering on the point of recession. And uh, the uh, Bank of England projects that the economy could lose 250,000 jobs in the next several years. And they just based on that, they just cut interest rates. I think to the lowest point ever. They're very nervous. They want to do everything they can to keep the economy, you know, at least stable. Um, but the reality is there will be a lot of uncertainty in the UK economy until Britain negotiates a deal with the EU. And, and until the future, particularly of their trading relationship, is clarified. And the most important item in these negotiations will be to what degree Britain has access to the EU's single market, the biggest single market in the world. And without access, without free access, I should say, the UK would face higher tariffs um, and on their manufactured goods, and also uh, more limited access on their services, say like banking or insurance. 
So these are big industries and they could be affected. And given that 45% of British exports, manufactured exports, go to the EU, it affects a lot of uh, companies, a lot of industries. So already, though, the EU has made it quite clear that Britain will only get free access to the single market if they maintain, among other things, free movement of people. So for EU citizens. So this means if you want access to our market, you're going to have to keep letting our people come into your country to work. Well, this goes against one of the main <laughs> cases or platforms of the Leave campaign. They wanted to limit immigration from the EU. Well, the EU is going to say, no, you can't, not if you want access to our market. That's the deal we uh, made with Norway and Switzerland, and this is the deal we're going to make with you. Now, maybe UK negotiators can kind of find some kind of compromise where there are limits on EU immigration, um, and, and they work out some deal. But the EU has, I think, the, the best hand of cards. They have that market which the UK needs access to. And the Brexit supporters will disagree about this, but you know, it's the, the UK needs the EU market more than the EU needs the UK market. I think that's what it comes down to. Um, so also, the EU will demand for access to the market. They will also demand that the UK implement most EU rules and legislation as regards to things like labor, the environment, uh, anything industrial or economic, simply because they're going to point out that you know, we don't want you sitting offshore of Europe with lower regulations on things like environmental labor standards and then exporting to us without any barriers. We're not dumb. We're not going to do this. So, so they're basically saying, you're going to have to implement our rules. But the difference now is you're not going to have a seat at the table in making them. They're going to have to kind of go along whatever the EU passes in terms of legislation. So one of the ironies of the Brexit vote is that the policymaking process in, um, in, in Britain may become, in a sense, less democratic as a result of Brexit. They're not going to take back control. Control's going to remain in Brussels, and you're not going to be able to have any control over it. So we'll see how that turns out, and we'll see what the, the public's response is when it looks like the EU is going to demand that most policies or uh, legislation stays in place. There will be many exceptions, I'm sure, like fisheries is probably going to be an exception. But, but in a lot of industries, um, yeah, the EU is going to say, nope, you've got to follow our rules, because that's, that's the price you pay for uh, having access to our market. So now the, the UK does have the option of foregoing the free access to the EU single market. They could choose to just go by WTO rules. And tariffs in many, uh, many markets or many sectors will go up. So for instance, automobiles, it's like 10%. Well, that would impact the UK automobile industry, certainly, because all of a sudden their cars will not be as competitive with cars produced on the continent. So this could affect, for instance, the, certainly like investors choosing to invest in the UK for automobile production. And it's been a huge destination for that kind of uh, investment. Um, but you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not known yet what kind of negotiate, how the negotiations will proceed. Um, and in the meantime, it's possible that the UK could choose to pursue uh, negotiations with other trade partners for free trade agreements, say with you know, Canada, Japan, United States, um, and make quick progress on those. But chances are it will take time 
to do those. And in the meantime, there's a lot of uncertainty. And it's the uncertainty that prevents the investment, that uh, you know, kind of undermines business confidence. So there are a lot of challenges that the UK faces, even if they're quick and uh, effective negotiators. So, but I think in all cases, they do, both the EU and the UK do want to get a deal, right? Because they all stand to benefit from any kind of trade agreement. You know, they, German car industry doesn't want to lose the UK market. They don't want to face tariffs uh, going into to, um, the UK. But at the same time, a lot of EU countries don't want to give Britain a favorable deal or preferential treatment, even if they like the UK. Uh, because partly this is a political calculation. It's the economic, again, their, their industries are competing against the UK, so there's that. But it's also a political calculation. Many of these countries are worried about anti-establishment parties having like referenda in their own, calling for referenda in their own countries. So countries like France, Francois Hollande, the president of France, the last thing he wants to do is kind of be nice to the Brexit movement or the UK and its negotiations because that will encourage Marine Le Pen, the, the, the National Front in France, to call for a, a referendum in France. And already she's done that, and she's going to use it in next year's French presidential campaign. So France, the Netherlands, Sweden, a lot of European countries are worried about the Brexit encouraging these movements in their own countries. So they have, they have reason to be tough and not give Britain a deal. So. Um, and so Brexit will have an impact on these other EU countries, particularly ones that have similar kind of Eurosceptical uh, uh, parties, but um, also for the, the EU overall. And that's how I'd like to conclude my presentation. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, this again, this is the first time an EU member has withdrawn from the EU. And so it's a pretty big kind of existential blow coming on top of the Eurozone crisis, the migration crisis. I mean, the EU is really reeling right now from dealing with all these problems. It's not in a good place. Um, some like to point out a silver lining that says, look, without this awkward British, the awkward squad, when they move out, you know, we can just deepen integration. We can move forward. We can actually get stuff done now that the British aren't complaining about everything. I think that's too optimistic, because I think the, com the complaining done by Britain actually plays a useful role, because one thing it does is gives voice to a lot of smaller countries that are more Eurosceptical, like Denmark and Sweden. They say, well, Britain kind of champions that cause. Plus, they kind of balance the French and the Germans. You know, the British can kind of come in so it's not so cozy. And now it'll look increasingly like a German-dominated club. And the Germans realize that's not good for the EU. So um, that is good reason to, to stay yeah, that's one of the reasons Germany and other countries wanted Britain to stay. Another reason is because Britain was a very clear advocate of free markets, pro-business, free trade. Um, this is why Obama was supportive of UK staying in the EU. It's why Angela Merkel was, and there are other reasons too. Uh, plus, the UK is a global player, and they like you know, a strongly global country in the EU, uh, and Atlantis is pro-US in the EU. Because now that Britain's leaving, the EU is more likely to kind of drift into more isolationist, insular, protectionist mode. So that's going to have, I think, a big impact on the EU, not immediately, but over time. So we don't really know the full impact of Brexit on the UK or the EU just yet. But um, we're already starting to see some 
at least economic signs, and, and it's already showing that it's, it's going to have a pretty significant impact. Um, and they probably won't be as dire as some doomsayers predicted, but I mean, there's, it's, it's not also going to be as rosy as, as some of the Brexiters were saying. And um, it's certainly, in all cases, a big blow to the European project. Um, that, that, we still need to see where that goes in terms of affecting, you know, kind of the politics in other European countries, but also just kind of the impetus for deepening European integration. So that's where I'll leave things, and I, have, I guess we have a few minutes for questions. So, yes? Okay, and so you touched upon the theme whereby people without degrees tend to be more prone to vote for Brexit because mm -hmm. they uh, felt that globalization benefits were improving to them. And in fact, and I know this is a controversial topic, but it's my understanding that the bulk of the research suggests the fact that uh, globalization has tended to make income inequalities between countries decline, but within countries actually increase. And right. if that's true, that lends support to the actual voting results that we saw. So my question is, related to that, have you seen any analyses that, that discuss or analyze, uh, maybe correlate um, economic performance, let's say by county or region over the past eight years, 10 years, et cetera, versus the Brexit vote within Britain? No, no, not yet. Because you know, this is really fresh. But I bet people are working on that. I mean, that, that uh, article that I cited about for the Italian researchers about Chinese imports, I don't think that's even been published yet. That's just like a working paper. They just have it posted online. Because they're still trying to work out the implications. They probably started on it earlier, but they didn't have the data until just now. Um, so probably, like I was saying earlier, is that this is going to be worked out over time as more careful study of, of the voter out, um, outcomes and, and also just kind of like um, you know more careful attention to the detail because now there's more reason to go back and look at can we see these kind of relationships. Um, so yeah, I think that people will be doing this in the next few years, particularly in the UK, obviously. Yes? I was talking with some of my uh, foreign exchange students about this, uh, some from Spain and Italy and some other countries. and. Um, one of their concerns was who is going to, you know, bankroll their welfare system that they had in Spain and other countries, uh, because England was paying a lot more than other countries into the EU. Is, is there any implications of those kind of things? Yes. So Britain was a net contributor to the EU budget, but not as much as the Brexit campaign liked to tout. They would always claim we're spending billions of pounds to the EU, to the EU it was at 350 million pounds per week. But they got a lot of that back in terms of subsidies to like British farmers or British universities, regions, whatever. But it's true that Britain was still a net contributor. And so countries like Spain will you know, now have to be, you know, they're going to be less money for those countries. And probably they'll spread it out pretty far. Um, but, but yeah, that would be, I think, a concern for, but I don't think it's the principal concern of, of many, certainly the voters. I think the voters are thinking more like, it's sad to see the British go. You know, they, they really do feel like, you know, they've lost a member of the family, not dead, but, you know, they've kind of moved away. <laughs> Let's put it like that. And so I think a lot of people are uh, sad for that reason, what it means for, Euro you know, European integration. Uh, one thing I didn't mention was that on the, the migration debate in the EU, um, what people don't point out is the EU migrants actually are net contributors to the UK tax base. They take, put in more than they take out. Now, people made that argument, but it got swamped out by the kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric. So 
Can I do one, one more? Yeah. Okay. Yes? Did the, the Great did they close down their borders afterwards to prevent immigrants from coming in right away? Who, the UK? Yeah, the UK. No, nothing's going to happen immediately. Uh, so um, everything, and they made very clear that it's like, look, nothing's going to change overnight. Partly, too, because there are a couple million Brits in Europe, particularly in Spain, all living there in retirement uh, and working in Europe. So none of the parties wants to just put up borders immediately. But they are going to have a negotiation about what this means for the future of, of, of Britons in Europe and Europeans in Britain. And a lot of people are now uncertain. They're, like, scared. It's like, will I be allowed to work here? Hmm? Nothing has changed yet? No. Uh, the British government, I think, has announced that effective whenever they announce the formally announced Brexit, you know, uh, or start negotiations, um, if you're, they'll, they'll start a new clock for immigrants. And if you're there you know, on good terms or whatever for you know, five years, you're OK. So they're trying to reassure people, but that still kind of makes people anxious. Because they're not saying, you can stay, don't worry about it. They're kind of hedging a little bit. So this is all to come out in the next couple of years. But in the meantime, for the industries, for the immigrants, it's very uncertain. So, so I think we're done. So yep. yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much.